0: vacation rental owners, and more, all geared toward helping you make it happen. Here's your host, Heather Bayer.
1: Well, hello again, and welcome to another episode of the Vacation Rental Success Podcast. This is your host, Heather Bayer, and I'm so happy to be back with you again. And as summer has now drawn to a close, well, the summer season, that is, We are starting to really move ahead and plan for 2018. And actually, it's been an interesting summer this year because we've taken more bookings for 2018 this summer, uh, you know, a year early than we ever have done before. So that's been a little surprising, the amount of guests who are looking to book much, much earlier, not leaving it till January or February, but wanting to lock into their dates very, very early. One of the things that we're we're doing, we're talking to our owners about the information that is is given to guests. So we're having them look at their their welcome books. We're looking at the sort of information that's sent to our guests prior to their stay. Uh, In fact, anything that goes out to them between finding the property and actually getting there. So we want to make sure that we have this regular flow of Information to them, so that by the time they get to their vacation, whether it's you know a couple of weeks from now or a year from now, that they have absolutely everything they need, and they're not sort of scrambling around at the last minute to to try and remember when they booked and what information they need to to get to the property and to get into it, and what the stuff they, sort of stuff that they have to take with them but the other thing that we are taking a lot of time over this year, this, this fall, is to relook at our guest agreement, the contract that we have as property managers with our guests. Well, it, well in fact, I say that the, our agreement is between our owners and their guests, and we sort of broker the arrangement as property managers. But this is, it's an important document because it offers guidelines to the guests as to what they can do, what they can't do, what they can bring, what they can't bring. You know, a number of properties, they cannot bring an ATV, they cannot bring a dirt bike. Um, So some properties do not allow for um, motorboats to be brought. And then, of course, there's the pet issue and there's children and there's all sorts of different things that we want our guests to agree to before they fully decide that this is the vacation for them uh, and the vacation location and property for them. We want it to be as simple to read as possible, but couched in the sorts of terms that they understand it's also a contract, it's a binding agreement. Now, we, we put together our agreement way, way back, 14, 15 years ago when we started out, and although it has been adjusted over time, we probably haven't given it anywhere near as much attention uh, as we should have done. So this year is, is it's our levelling year. where We are looking at a lot of the stuff that we do, um, redoing it, having it checked over by an appropriate professional, and and making sure that we're not missing anything. So when I saw... A blog post on the VRMA site, which was written by Brian Gion and Evan Osborne, um, Corporate Counsel and General Counsel, respectively, at Tevecasa. I, um, I was very interested in the content of that because this is exactly what I'm looking for. Um, the, the title of the article was Four Things Your Guest Agreement Should Do. And I'll put a link to this to, to this blog post uh, in the show notes, so you can go take a look at it. But I, I thought, well, this would be great to, you know, this is a great time for me and probably for a lot of other owners and property managers to consider again the guest agreement that they are sharing with their guests and asking them to sign and making sure that what, that, that, that the agreement is doing what it should do. So I invited Brian from Vacasa to come and chat with me. And without further ado, let's go on over to that interview. So I'm delighted to have with me Brian Guion from Vacasa. Um, And he is located in Oregon, which is just one beautiful part of the US. In fact, one beautiful part of the world. So welcome, Brian. It's an absolute pleasure to have you with me.
0: It's wonderful to be here, Heather. Thanks.
1: Um, you are the corporate counsel for FICASA. What does that mean?
0: Uh, that means that I'm one of the in-house lawyers. We have a team of several of them. And in my role as in-house lawyer, I do a lot of uh, contracts of various kinds, including guest contracts. But any kind of legal issue facing the company is something that, that I might
1: touch. Yeah, how did you get into how did you get into this industry then? Um because I'm I'm assuming you haven't been in vacation rentals for since you left law school. I have not.
0: Um it was fortuitous, I think, that I ended up here and in this industry. I'm I'm enjoying it quite a lot, but my background is much more diverse. Lots of general business work in both litigation and um, I guess business advice contexts. And but you, it was a complete accident.
1: <laughs> and you've been, you've been with Vacasa since, uh, 2014?
0: Yes. It'll be, uh, three years in December.
1: You must've seen in, in the last three years, a lot of changes in, in the industry, because I, I know from, I've, I've been doing this for nearly 25 years and I, it, it still changes week to week.
0: Uh, absolutely. Lots of changes. There are, uh, Changes, of course, on the demand side, so there are more and more guests who are choosing vacation rentals and uh, in on the on the industry side, there are lots of different companies, lots of innovation happening among different companies, lots of channel partners that are rising, falling, changing it's a very dynamic industry, and uh, I think has been for the last Certainly three years, but I would say three to ten years, really.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I go back to when people still had had the sign on the lawn that said for rent, and the only way you could advertise yes. a property was to, was to put a classified ad in the local paper. So uh, Yes,
0: and then, uh, and then the internet came and shook things up a little bit.
1: So today, we're gonna, I wanted to talk to you about guest agreements because uh, I read your post on the Verma website – um, the blog post. I, I came across it at a very uh, opportune time because, as I run a property management company, we do look at our guest agreement not as often as we should. This this year, we're going to be doing a complete revamp of it. And the the article wasn't that long, but it was jam packed full of useful stuff. So I thought this is great. I'm going to get Brian on here to talk about guest agreements. And, and what we should all be doing as uh, property managers and independent owners. So are you up for that? I am. Excellent. So let's, let's just kick off with the, you know what, what is a guest agreement and why is it important to have one?
0: So uh, a guest agreement is the document that is governing the relationship between the guest and, and you. And when I say you... That can be you as an owner who is renting out, renting out your home or you as the manager of a home that you're managing on behalf of someone else. And it is important to have some kind of guest agreement. Um, I'm sure we'll go on to talk about the specific contents, but you want to establish what the, what the terms are of the occupancy of the home. Uh, unlike a situation where you might own a vacation home and you're just letting friends or family members stay there and there's not really any formal arrangement, may not be any payment of money, in this case, you, you're engaging in a commercial transaction. And so you, you want to put some bounds around what that transaction involves, both for your protection and, and if you're a manager – for the protection of of your owner and for the guest's protection and understanding as well. And just to make things clear for all parties, what the expectations are.
1: It's interesting, you know, because, you know, I was looking back today on the last five or six vacation rentals I've been to. Now, three of them were via Airbnb. One was via booking.com and two were direct with the owner. And not one of them had a guest agreement um, or any form of signature required contract of, of any sort. So I, w- I was just wondering whether, you know, this, this, this is something that, that seems to be, um, you know, that uh, the owners aren't doing anymore. And, and if they're not, I'd like to hear your, your, your view on whether they should be.
0: I absolutely think they should be. I, I suspect what is happening is that as as owners use channels like Airbnb and Booking dot com and and other platforms more often, they are relying on the default terms that those channels provide. So they have some some set terms, and I think the owners assume that those terms protect them or adequately address the 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 terms of their particular rental and i i think that's a dangerous assumption it it might work in some cases you don't necessarily have to have to have a separate more detailed agreement but i think it is unwise to assume that airbnb has all of your best interests at heart and have uh, has a detailed knowledge of the particular needs that you have in renting out your unit so i don't have a good i don't have a good explanation Mm-hmm. as to why owners might not be using, using that, other than they assume it's unnecessary.
1: It, it really hadn't crossed my mind, actually, that I had not signed any, you know, any contract or agreement in, in the last half dozen places I've been to. So I, I'll, I'll be looking out for it in the future. But going, going back to it, so let, let's say we've got some owners out there that are listening and they're going, wow, you know, I really should have one of these. Or you know, I haven't updated my agreement in 10 years. So maybe I should be re-looking at it. Let's start. Um, let's start at the beginning. Then, what needs to be included, and how much detail should be provided?
0: That's a really interesting question, because as you have noted, it's not legally required to have one. It's just a very good idea. So, in terms of what should be included there uh at a minimum you should have the basic terms of the occupancy and so i would describe that as a you know who what where uh when probably not why but uh who who what where when so who get, who gets to occupy it who is the who is the guest and what other people are allowed to occupy the unit uh when so what what are the the dates of occupancy when can they check in by what time must they check out the where is the unit that they are going to be occupying, whether it's a home or a condo or whatever. What is the address? What's the unit number? And um, the how is the part that's really the heart of the guest agreement. Uh, what are the conditions of the, of the occupancy? So I think you need, to, you need to address those points at a minimum. And, of course, the, the compensation, I think, falls under the how. What is the what is the cost? And what are the terms of payment?
1: When, when the deposit should be paid, when the final balance should be paid, um,
0: exactly. Cancellation policies, uh, refund policies, things of that kind.
1: Yeah, and I guess um, damage deposit as well would come into that as well, wouldn't it? And, and, yes. So, so when it, if
0: like, if you charge one, yes.
1: Yeah. So, so what about um, detail that's that's included? How much how much detail should actually be in there or Or do you sort of take for granted that guests have common sense? (laughs) (laughs) I know the answer to this. but
0: (laughs) I would not take for granted that guests have common sense. I I think a lot of guests have common sense. And even if 95% of guests have common sense, the 5% that don't are going to cause problems. So the level of detail... It depends on a lot of factors. It depends on how comfortable you are with ambiguity. It depends on what sort of rental you're dealing with. So, if you are renting out an individual home that is standalone, maybe not part of a resort, you will probably want to set out the rules. But they might be, depending on what amenities are available, they might be a little more bare bones than if you are renting out a unit that's part of a larger resort or complex or community that has its own sets of rules that you are required to advise guests of and, and the guests have to agree to. So the level of detail really depends on on the context. It also depends on how much you want to get into specifics of what guests might or might not be doing. So our rental agreement, for example, and, and I guess at this point, I want to Add a couple of disclaimers. One is I'm not I'm not providing legal advice. That you you should consult your own attorney if you have have questions about your own situation, and that my views are my own and not necessarily the views of casa, But uh, in terms of uh, what our agreement says, we we address things uh, like filming on the premises, so commercial commercial photography. Mm-hmm. That's not necessarily something that needs to be in your guest agreement. It, it arose because we have had some incidents where there were commercial film productions in units that we were managing, and we were not okay with that, and the owner was not okay with that. But it's not something that legally has to be in there. If you if you don't care or if you don't think this is going to be an issue, there's no reason it needs to be in there. So you can you can drill down to quite a level of detail, or it can be something like – Please adhere to a good neighbor policy, no noise after 10 p.m., no smoking, uh, period. There are some things that you are going to want to address, uh, like whether pets are allowed, um, smoking, maximum occupancy, things like that. But the amount of, let's say, color around those particular points is really up to you.
1: Yeah, I, I, I definitely resonate with, with that because I was, when I was looking through our agreement, we have, we have things like that, that says about wildlife if a raccoon comes on the property uh, or, or a moose or a bear, you know, and, and what might occur with that. We, we don't take responsibility for the actions of wildlife, which is, is not what, what you probably find in, a, in an urban condo in Toronto.
0: Presumably not. We'd hope yeah, that. that's probably moose. Moose behavior may not be something that that you need to include. Or if you're in Florida, you could put in something about alligators, mm-hmm. but probably not so much about moose.
1: It's probably not the best idea to find some boilerplate um, agreement online and just use that without any consideration of the peculiarities of the of the location and and the property.
0: That's absolutely true. And I will also caution that any agreement that you find online may or may not have been vetted by somebody who actually knows what they're doing. So even if the context seems okay, I've seen agreements where people throw in some wording that um, either doesn't make sense or is not really legally enforceable. And uh, I think it makes them comfortable that it's in there, but it doesn't actually do them any good at the end of the day.
1: Well, that's a good segue to talking about um, how readable this document should be, uh, because I I have seen documents that are couched in such legal terms that it's almost frightened me off um, booking the property in the first place. However, you know, you want to make sure, as you say, that the, the agreement is as legally binding as it can possibly be. Can you do that without being... Uh, writing it in legal language
0: absolutely and i strongly encourage anyone who's trying to write their own guest agreement uh, well first of all i encourage them to get a lawyer involved but you don't necessarily need to use the lawyer's words the lawyer can just review what you've done but i strongly encourage people to use plain english in drafting any any agreement but guest agreements specifically, And the reason is, lawyers are not going to be the ones figuring out what the agreement means. It's going to be you, it's going to be your employees, if you have employees, and it's going to be the guest. And it's not really that helpful to have an agreement that is rock-solid and forcible after the fact, but that nobody can understand at midnight when someone's having a party. So you want to be able to point to a provision in the agreement and have everyone understand what that means. And if and if it's written in legalese, many, many people will not understand what it means, including probably many lawyers. I think a, a lot of people generally think that it looks more impressive or it makes them feel good to use legalese, but there are very few situations where you have to use some sort of magic word to make something legally enforceable. So, I absolutely encourage people to make the document readable. The fact that it is readable does not mean it's not enforceable.
1: Mm-hmm. So, so the document itself is, is laying out the rights and responsibilities really of of each party. Exactly. Um, so, it would be you know as as owner, this is what you are going to get. And as a guest, this is what I expect from you.
0: Yes, yes, exactly.
1: So if somebody's starting out from scratch, think, okay, I'm going to write this thing. Really, that's, that's what they, they need to start with, is, is what, what do you want your guests to do that's right by, you know, by your property?
0: That's exactly right. And, and while I have already cautioned against copying agreements that you might see online, I think it's helpful to look at them um, guest agreements are a lot easier to find than owner agreements, so you can look at management companies guest agreements and just see what people are see, see what people are doing, what sorts of terms they include in there and again, that doesn 't mean you just want to copy them, but um, it might give you some ideas that you never really thought about a particular issue, but that could be a problem, and so you want you want to address that in the in the agreement
1: looking back 15 years ago when we started our company, the first thing I did was to look at other property management companies in the area and what, you know, they, they, most of them had their, their terms and conditions are online. Yes. So, so really, right. really, the guest agreement is the terms and conditions of rental because um, that was a question somebody asked me the other day. Is a guest agreement the same as, as the terms and conditions? I said, well, basically, yes.
0: Yeah, it 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 is composed of terms and conditions. Yeah. So, yeah, they're they're pretty synonymous.
1: So so to me the agreement is just just the signature at the end that says this is I'm agreeing to these terms and conditions.
0: Yes, and we can talk about the signature itself.
1: Yes, later. It doesn't have
0: to be a it doesn't have to be a wet signature of course. It can be an electronic signature or or something that is manifesting clearly manifesting the guest's agreement to the terms, but uh, it, it can be, but it doesn't have to be something that they're actually signing,
1: yeah, um, signing by hand.: yeah. yeah, well, we'll talk about that now because it's um it, it, it's something that comes to mind every time I go online, join something, download something, um and up comes the box that says "Tick here that you accept the terms and conditions, and you never read them i mean you you probably do
0: i I, I sometimes <laughs> do. <laughs> <laughs> just out of a sense of professional obligation. But normally, yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily read the terms and conditions.
1: So if you're doing this online, why would anybody then read the terms and conditions? So obviously you've you've created these this, this agreement, these these terms and conditions that that your guests need to agree to, but so many people just tick that box and say, Yes, I've read the terms and conditions because We're so used to doing it. Is that still binding if if they've just ticked the box?
0: Well, it depends on your jurisdiction. Some jurisdictions, I'm not sure about provincial laws, but I think there are some states in the U.S. where agreements for rental of any period, even a short-term rental, require – there, there are certain documentation requirements. By and large, as a general proposition, I think this is true both in the U.S. and Canada, electronic signatures and, and that sort of manifestation of agreement is legal. But whether it's helpful is a different question. So you're absolutely right that people, people need to understand what they're agreeing to, and having a, a scroll window may not be the best way to do it. There are lots of ways around that uh what we do at ficasa is we have a summary of of the terms and then the full agreement and so they it doesn't make the agreement less binding or at least I hope not but it does have some of the key points basically twice you know so they see a, they see a, a few key points and then they'll see it again if they read through the full agreement um things like pets and minimum ages and maximum occupancy and quiet hours and things like that the, the stuff that we really want want people to notice if i can digress a little bit here there are certain things that you might want guests to know that don't actually have to be in the rental agreement so if it's something that's useful or helpful to the guest but it doesn't need to be part of the legal contract between the guest and the owner or manager it doesn't have to go in the guest agreement. That could go in a separate email or a welcome message or, or something else. But if you want it to be a, an absolute, absolutely necessary term, then it should go in the, in the guest agreement. So directions to the home doesn't have to be in the guest agreement. probably shouldn't be in the guest agreement. So you don't need to make it ridiculously long. It doesn't have to be every communication between – or I should say everything – that you want to communicate to the guest um, only the, the key legal terms.
1: Yeah, that's, that's a great point. The other thing I wanted to cover was, um, and, and I noted, I'm just going to read this out from, from the blog post guest agreements should also include explicit, enforceable companion terms. Can you just elaborate on that?
0: We hope that guests are going to abide by everything in the guest agreement, but we also know that that's not going to happen 100% of the time. You want to be able to point to something that that has consequences when guests fail to abide by the guest agreement. That can be, for example, uh, if they're smoking in a non-smoking home, that can be a a specific penalty associated with that. So it could be a, a set fee. It could be it could be something, uh, but something that they're agreeing to that is tied to specific behavior that that they should not be engaging in but nonetheless do. So damage, um, smoking pets that they're not allowed to bring, occupancy that is above the maximum occupancy or the occupancy that they've paid for. Uh, parties if if you're in a uh, homeowners association or in a community that levies that levies fines sometimes they levy fines against the owner of the home not necessarily the occupant you might want to make the guests responsible for those fines things like that and then you can always include some boilerplate choice of law provisions um, provisions around how disputes might be resolved you hope that you never have to get to that point on either side because if you're if you're dragging a guest into court or vice versa something's gone very badly wrong but you should at least consider the possibility that that might be necessary
1: yes i mean in in 15 years of 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 our business um we've never yet got to that point it's got close on, on occasion um you know, I, I recall when a when a a guest um, decided he wanted to use the the owner's boat that had been left on the property, um, mm. and uh, <laughs> did did significant amount of damage to it, and then claimed he'd been nowhere near it. That was uh, that, that was an incident about six years ago, and it's one that's never gone from my mind. Um, uh, but but yes, we we just don't. We, we haven't seen it fortunately but it's not to say it's never going to happen so it's 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 definitely worthwhile knowing what might happen what's the possibility um of a guest agreement being violated what would be the step that an owner would would take what would be the next step so let's let's take an example that um um bringing a pet into a, a pet-free home. Because um, we, we have a number of those, as, as I'm sure the um, CASA probably has thousands of them, pet-free homes that are kept pet-free so that they can be offered to people with allergies. So uh, in that occasion, it's not a huge issue. It's not a huge monetary issue, but the owner may have to go to a lot of lengths to get that property sanitized. And, and back to being pet and dander free. And now they want to take this back to the guest and get them to pay for that. How would they use the agreement in that in, in doing that?
0: Well, you'd want to make sure that the agreement was clear on the conditions under which a pet would be allowed and that pets are not allowed except under those conditions. So you want to, you want to be able to establish that they violated a provision. That's that's step 1. If you can't establish that, then there's no remedy. So, if you establish that, you would you would need to have something in the contract that that provides what the what the damages would be. So, in in your case, in your example, you might include wording that if you do bring a pet, then you're responsible for the additional costs of cleaning. You might if you have an estimate of what the additional costs of cleaning might be, you might just set a fine of X amount. The one thing you want to avoid is really vague language like, you're, you'll are you be responsible for damages. Because what does that mean? The, the To the guest, that might mean if the animal scratches something and the animal is perfectly well behaved, it just wasn't supposed to be there, and it shed a bunch of hair and dander. So... You, you want to be clear about what what that remedy involves, and avoid really ambiguous terms if possible. I have a good pet, pet story um, just to just to make clear that you have to think about, about your wording very carefully. Pets can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. We did have one home where the housekeepers arrived, the guests were checking out weight, as I understand it, and they had a thousand pound pig. Mm-hmm. That they were bringing out of the house. So, while you don't need to probably specifically prohibit pigs, you want your wording to be broad enough to cover any sort of crazy situation that might that might arise.
1: Yeah, I love pig stories. We've 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 turned down four pot-bellied pigs already this year.
0: Oh well, that's at least people were being upfront about what they wanted to bring.
1: Well, this is true. Yes, yes, but it, it surprised me that you know there are a lot of cock-bellied pigs that are kept as pets. and um, one, of, one of them was a therapy pig. A
0: therapy pig. So service animals are yet another issue, and that's probably the subject of a whole other podcast. I don't know what what um, sort of ADA equivalent you have in Canada, but certainly in the U.S. If you have a pet-free home, that doesn't mean yes. you can prevent service animals, people who have legitimate service animals. However, therapy pigs, to my understanding, do not fall into the category of service animals. I think under US law the only types of animals that can be service animals are dogs and miniature horses.
1: Miniature horses.
0: Miniature horses can be used as seeing-eye horses. This is true, and I think they may have a couple of other potential legitimate uses as service animals. Not aware of any miniature horses being brought into any of our homes, but they are they are service animals under under us federal law
1: yeah it's, and it is it is really worthwhile um, checking for anybody who is um, who is looking at at going into this business and saying they are going to be absolutely pet free that you do have to consider um, ADA um, regulations and what you know what the, the, the fact that I, I believe you must accept um, service animals into into a home is that correct? I
0: that's mean, I'm not, generally not go correct. In, we're not going to yeah. go into
1: this in, in, in detail, but it's, it's just worthwhile um, pointing this out.
0: That is generally correct. There there are a few caveats to that, but but um, by and large, that's that's something a lot of owners aren't happy about. That, but mm-hmm. there's not much any of us can do without lobbying Congress.
1: Mm well we've we've had incidences where 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 somebody with a a um a service dog has wanted to go into a um a pet free property and and we have just gone back and said and just just told them what the situation is with the property that it's never had a pet in it. We understand that if they definitely want that property then um provision will be made for it but um we've given them um options to choose other ones which um which have had pets in them, and, and those people have usually been generally very comfortable with, uh, you know, and reasonable with, with, um, with changing properties because they had not realized that, um, that the property was um, so pet-free.
0: I think in general, people with legitimate service animals tend to be uh, very easy to work with mm-hmm. on, on that sort of thing. The difficulty personally that i i see is that there's no requirement or there's no ability really to demand proof that the animals are legitimate service animals so i think generally speaking managers and owners are more likely to have problems with people claiming that they have a service animal that is not in fact a service animal and not really being able to do anything about that
1: mm-hmm. Yeah. As you say, that's, that, that could be a topic for, a, for, for a complete podcast. So let's move on.
0: <laughs> yes. Yeah. Sorry for the digression.
1: <laughs> no, it was mine. It was mine. Just, just one more point that, um, that you made in, um, the blog post, uh, on the Verma site. Uh, you said, keep in mind that your guest agreement is part of your overall risk mitigation strategy. You mentioned there things like owner agreements, um, Recruiting the right employees, et cetera, but how what else should be taken into account to to protect the owner uh, or property manager so i don't
0: think there's really a way to absolutely protect the the owner or the property manager. It is really about mitigating mitigating risks that you can you can foresee so the the owner agreement, as you mentioned, is one. Um, making sure that you you have trustworthy employees is another. Making sure the employees are adequately trained. So uh, if you have poorly trained employees, even if they mean well and are perfectly trustworthy, they have a higher likelihood of, of doing something they, they shouldn't that might cause an injury or, or cause, a, cause a problem with a guest. I think it is um, helpful to have some form of – guest screening if you can do it, but it doesn't have to be, uh, necessarily onerous, but, uh, you know, there are red flags. (laughs) Certainly. Uh, I think we've, we've all experienced the guests that we know are going to be problems from the outset, or there, there are some, some odd things about their reservation that when they show up, who shows up does not match, Mm -hmm. um, what was what was described in the reservation so 20 people who are 21 show up instead of a 50 year old couple um (laughs) you you may not be able to catch that catch that at the time the reservation is made but you should have a strategy for dealing with it if that occurs and obviously the guest agreement is a key part of that strategy but um you, you want to nip that in the bud right away when i say uh you know, paying attention to guests. Of course, you can't discriminate on the basis of any kind of protected class. So that's another legal requirement that that owners and managers need to be aware of. So, uh, if I, I, I hope I won't insult anyone when I say we had a potential owner who said, and this is true, I don't want any Canadians at my property. Uh, that struck me as kind of an odd pre- <laughs> preference. Not sure why. Maybe they they had a bad experience with. A hockey team once or something but um that's discrimination on the basis of national origin it's not it's not permitted um we ended up not not taking on that owner but it's it's not okay to do that so when i say risk mitigation i mean you know you have people who are underage or who are clearly there to to party that's the, that's the sort of thing you need to try to uh try to watch out for
1: on our booking form, we we, we ask for we ask, actually ask for names and ages, but um, for a number of reasons, for um, insurance, for one thing, and for, um, for 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 the owners because they actually like to know um, how old the kids are, so they can uh, they, they can create their guest gifts around the kids. Um, so so our our guest agreement actually says that only those people that were listed on the booking form are permitted to be at the property at any time and we find that that is we we will always bring our guests attention back to that just before they they start their vacation and and we have found that that has stopped once we started doing that the the risk of overcrowding or the the um, incidences of overcrowding dropped dramatically
0: i think that's a great a great strategy and, and anything you can do to engage in the, engage with the guests, um, I think, helps reduce the risk that they are going to be bad guests.
1: Mm-hmm. As I say, we, we send out a note to, to guests um, around, just a week before they go just to remind them of the guest agreement that they – of the guest contract that they agreed to and, and give them a link so they can go and have another look at it. And that has – because we have on we, we we don't allow tent camping in any of our properties because there's likelihood of bears it's just It's just not worth the risk um, we have little children being eaten up in the middle of the night um so that would be awkward yeah, and we don't allow fireworks at at any property because the fire risk is is pretty high in most parts of Canada, and so so we often get you know the day or so before oh are we definitely not allowed fireworks because they had planned their little firework party and then getting a, a a sent a copy of the agreement again just before they go on vacation has has stopped them in their tracks almost and got them thinking about what their responsibilities are
0: all of that is is um i think very useful at reminding the guests of their of their responsibilities Multiple times, and as you as you said, close to the time of check in is really very useful. I think um, most guests are not going to deliberately violate policies, and so if you if you educate them on the policies they're they're going to be good guests. Um, the guests that are going to ignore the policies will ignore them pretty much no matter <laughs> no matter what you do, but that is not most guests so uh, so I think that's a that's a good approach. One other risk mitigation strategy that we haven't touched on is uh, if you have specific amenities available at the property that the guest is allowed to use. So to take your boat example, the guest was not allowed to use that boat and did, but if there was a, a, a boat, hopefully an unpowered boat, a canoe, a kayak, guests are allowed to use, then you might ask them to sign a liability waiver and advising them of the risks of the particular amenity. So, and what that, what, what that amenity might be and what the risks might be are going to vary from property to property. But, uh, liability waivers can be, can be useful if you are making recreational amenities available as well.
1: We use, we use a liability rate waiver, um, because all our properties are waterfront. And so every property has boats, non-motorized boats. Um, so, the liability waiver is the only thing that in our uh, guest agreement that is written in legalese. Um, yes. <laughs> is that a wise move?
0: It doesn't have to be written in legalese, but it does have to, at least for most U.S. states, and I assume it's similar in, in Canadian provinces. Things like limitation of liability um, because of you know, which is what you're doing in a liability waiver. You're asking people to waive the ability to sue you in the event of, a, event of a problem. They need to be prominent, meaning that the type needs to be either all caps or bold or larger than the rest of the agreement to draw, to draw the reader's attention to that. Uh, it needs to have often some specific legal terms in it. It doesn't necessarily have to be written in legalese, but it does need to include certain words generally. That may appear to be legalese, <laughs> so so there's probably uh, that's probably necessary to some extent.
1: I haven't got a clue what our waivers mean, <laughs> what our liability waivers mean.
0: <laughs> consult <laughs> consult with a qualified yes. qualified attorney.
1: <laughs> yeah, I am definitely well. As I said at the beginning, we are you know we're looking at our um, guest agreement and we'll be revisiting it this this year. And it will be taken to um, to our um, our lawyer before it uh, it is released to uh, to the public. Brian, it's been an absolute pleasure talking with you. Um, you've, you've very actually, much likewise. You've, <laughs> you've actually made the whole um, guest agreement legal side of it sounds so much more interesting.
0: Thank you. I think. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm not sure if that's a compliment, but I'll take it as one.
1: Oh, definitely. Definitely. Um, you know, I, I've, I've just come off a, uh, another podcast interview with, about insurance. And, and again, you know, that's, that's, that's another topic that could be incredibly dry, but um, it's, it's so relevant. And these, um, these legal agreements are so, uh, these guest agreements are so relevant and, and I think you've been able to explain, A, why owners should have them, and, and secondly, what, you know, secondly, what should be in them, and, and thirdly, why they, all these things should be there. So, um, so thank you for explaining that so wonderfully. Before you go, can you tell us a little bit more about Vicasa?
0: Vicasa was started in 2009. And uh, it started with two people, and I think we're up to about 1,600 now. And uh, originally, it was just fairly local to the to the um, area around Portland, Oregon, within, within a few hours of Portland. Now we are uh, international, so we have homes in, I think the number is 16 states and something like 11 countries. And we are expanding very rapidly. So um, we are a full-service property management company. Um, there are a lot of different flavors of property management company, but we do the the management of the homes and as well as the booking and marketing and all the um, all the associated work there. And uh, we are, I believe, the second largest vacation rental company in the United States.
1: Mm-hmm. And how many properties do you have?
0: It's uh, six thousand, I think, wow. more or less.
1: Oh, makes my one hundred and eighty seem just inf- yeah tiny.
0: A <laughs> 180 is uh, is a lot, actually. 6,000, at least 180. You can, you're at the stage where you you can personally have a sense of every property. 6,000. I don't think uh, any of us is in any position to stay in, in most of those.
1: So, uh, as I say, it's been a, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for uh, thank you for sharing your um, extensive knowledge, and uh, and I hope that uh, I'm sure you will be around and about at um, VRMA. I year. will. I yeah. will
0: in Orlando. Yes.
1: Excellent. So I'll catch up with you then and we can meet in person.
0: Great. Look forward to it, Heather. Thanks very much.
1: You're very welcome. It's a pleasure. That was great, Brian. Thank you so much for, for, for sharing all that. I'm sure you found that incredibly useful even, you know, I have been in this business for over 20 years and there were parts of of that interview where I was getting aha moments. So I, I hope that's been helpful for you, whether you've been in the industry for as many years or beyond the, uh, the time that I've spent in it or whether you're completely new. This is not something that you leave to chance. You really have to get your guest agreement in order, make sure it really says what you want it to say, it's covering absolutely everything, yet it's it's couched in terms that your guests can understand. I have created a checklist for you, a checklist of all the things that you should be including, uh, well, should, you could be including in your guest agreement and your terms and conditions of rental. So all you have to do is go to www.cottageblogger.com forward slash VRS197. And that's going to take you to the show notes page where you can collect your download checklist for your guest agreement. And that's the checklist that I'm going to be using for upgrading or updating the guest agreement for my business. So it's, uh, it's going to have everything on it. Well, that's it for another week. And thank you so much for listening. It's been a great interview, super topic. I am so pleased that I had the opportunity to sit down with Brian and ask all the questions that I needed to ask before I started updating my own agreements. So as ever, i uh, just like to thank you for taking the time to be with me and I will look forward to being with you again next week.
0: This episode of Vacation Rental Success is over, but don't worry, Heather will be back soon. Want more great resources? Visit cottageblogger.com for tips, tricks, downloads, and strategies to help you achieve profit from your vacation rental business.